Hello and welcome to The Real Maxime Podcast. I'm Maxime, your host. I'm an economist, former tech entrepreneur, hedge fund founder, and private investor. Adapting and handling uncertainty is the name of the game in crypto at the moment. There are no obvious trades or path. It will take a very broad set of skills and a versatile approach to risk-taking to emerge ahead in the coming years. A polymath refers to an individual who possesses expertise and proficiency across a wide range of diverse disciplines or fields of knowledge. It is someone who has cultivated a deep understanding and competence in multiple areas, often beyond what is considered conventional or expected. My guest today, Joe McCann, was raised by a single mom. His personal journey began with a childhood marked by constant movement, adapting to new environments with remarkable ease. This early experience served as the catalyst for his polymathic nature, fostering an insatiable curiosity and a natural ability to rapidly acquire new skills. Joe's multidisciplinary background, which encompasses software engineering, technology entrepreneurship, trading, angel investing, and cryptocurrencies, forms the foundation of his expertise. He is as comfortable discussing enterprise Node.js deployment, volatility surface dynamics in layer one pairs, or global liquidity dynamics as an explanatory factor for asset price discovery. Through our conversation, we unravel the intricacies of his journey, examining the pivotal moments that shaped his trajectory and led him to the forefront of the digital assets landscape as an early investor and crypto native hedge fund manager. Joe insists on the importance of using technology to power a disciplined investment management process focused on identifying highly asymmetric payoffs, hence the name of his firm. Through intimate anecdotes and invaluable lessons learned, he shares his unique perspective on the evolution of crypto, the challenges encountered along the way while setting up the business, and the invaluable lessons gleaned from his multidisciplinary endeavors. Joe graduated from Portland State University with a BS in philosophy. I hope you enjoy our conversation. So I was born in uh, Northern California, the actual Northern California, Humboldt County, and moved a lot as a kid. Grew up with a single mom who had four boys, and we ended up moving quite a bit for her new jobs. So I uh, went to a number of different schools in a number of different states. So all over southeastern the United States, Florida, Alabama, Mississippi, Tennessee, upstate New York, and moved a good bit in between those states as well. I think one of the downsides to being the new kid all the time is that you're the new kid. That kind of sucks. But the upside to that is you become extremely adaptable to almost any environment. And one of the other things that I kind of learned as a kid is that when I would enter a new school or a new city or something, especially a new school, you started to see the same pattern of like the categories of people or the archetypes of people. So you had kind of like your jocks and your preps and your skaters and your stoners and your like this sort of stuff. And it just it didn't matter where I went, it was the same thing. And so I've talked about on the past, whether it's on a podcast or otherwise, because of my kind of obsession with pattern recognition. And it definitely started at a very early age. In addition to that, I've always been a huge math, wannabe math nerd. And I think the first book I ever checked out from a public library when I was in third grade was literally called Stock Market. So <laughs> this is in the late 80s. So been been interested in markets for a very long time as well. And so I think a lot of the things that I learned, certainly in my adolescent years, as it's impacted me today, I started working when I was 13 years old. I was actually a dishwasher in an Italian restaurant and worked my way up into a pizza cook and then eventually a sous chef. And did that all while going to school and was playing sports and all the AP classes, whatever, all that good stuff. 
and taught me a lot about responsibility, taught me a lot about discipline, as well as kind of growing up pretty quickly and getting a good sense of how the world kind of operates and functions. And so that has definitely carried over into my entrepreneurial years and even my professional careers when I worked at actual companies that weren't my own. And I do think it's uh, highly beneficial to have those kind of early experiences in the workforce, certainly early experiences with respect to how the world works and early responsibilities. The downside is, is you're not spending a lot of time goofing off as a kid, right? So you got to balance that when you're an adult. And I think I'm doing a decent job of that today. Yeah, that's so much to unpack. The things I can totally relate to. And I also want to say for listeners, like you recently became a dad for the second time, right? That's right. So there's responsibilities are definitely up there right now. Yeah, I was oil brat, so moved around a lot. My dad also moved around a lot. So I think it's in my DNA. So I can relate to that sort of, all right, got to start all over again. Or like, all right, what's the, again, to your point, pattern recognition. And so I'm assuming now when you get plopped into whatever situation, you're fairly able to navigate that, right? And has that helped you as an entrepreneur, do you actually think that you became an entrepreneur because of that? Do you think it's part of your DNA? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I, I think the short answer is yes. The longer answer is, is that I started becoming an entrepreneur. I mean, this is kind of like a cheesy example, but when I was about 11 years old, I was in, I guess, sixth grade at the time. Back then, I don't know what schools are like now, but chewing gum was not allowed. But somehow, miraculously, there was always chewing gum in our elementary schools. And it dawned on me when I entered the Kmart one day that you could get a 10-pack of Juicy Fruit gum. So these are 10 individual packages, five slices each, for $1. And then I could go to school and sell them to my classmates for a dollar a piece, netting $9 for that $1 investment. So <laughs> this definitely was... That's an ARB. <laughs> Yes, the learning uh, arbitrage at a very early age before probably being able to spell it. So I think a lot of that has to do with moving around a lot. You kind of you have a lot of time to yourself <laughs> because you're the new kid, right? But also, you kind of want to entertain yourself or find ways of engaging with people. And so what better way to make friends than offering gum at school at a reasonable price, right? And so I think that cheesy example is definitely relevant to how I think about businesses today and frankly, markets and opportunities in markets. And, and this alludes itself again to sort of the pattern recognition of, of looking for value where other people are not seeing it. And I think that has served me well, certainly as an entrepreneur, being very early to a number of tech trends, but then also serve me well with respect to my angel investment portfolio and doing angel, excuse me, early stage related investing, I absolutely did not have a 100% hit rate, but more wins than I have losses. And I think that that is testament to the desire to be seeking out, pardon the pun, asymmetry here, right? I mean, I think one of the things that I really resonate with Nassim Taleb, even though he's kind of an asshole on the internet, some of his philosophies and policies, I tend to actually agree with. And one of the reasons why I named the fund asymmetric is that's what I've effectively been seeking is these kind of asymmetric upside with limited to no downside or certainly managing limited downside with the types of investment that you're making, whether it's investing a dollar for a 10-pack of Juicy Fruit gum and earning 9 bucks or 900%, if you will, or it's evaluating secondary sales of growth stage companies to credit deals to 
early stage startups and even just early stage technology trends. That makes a lot of sense. And again, back to your chewing gum uh, you know, analogy, uh, not to draw comparisons, but again, when I was in college, actually first year at college, figured out I was in the border of France and Germany. I went to college in France and Red Bull drinks and other energy drinks were illegal in France, but there were a lot of parties. So what we would do is we'd go across the border, buy the Red Bull, sell it back in Paris and make quite a bit of money doing that. I think you also learn, and this is one thing that's very obvious, right? As an outsider and observer of what you do and how you communicate. I mean, you're obviously talented, not just at the technical side of things, but also the communication piece, right? You are a natural communicator, even in the way you converse, the way you communicate across a variety of different media channels. So I think what you also learn when you move around a lot like that in those different groups and reacquainting yourself with that dynamic is to deal with different personalities, different egos, different ethos. Now, the one thing I didn't ask was, did you fall into any of those buckets? Like you talked about the skaters, the stoners, the jocks, like, or were you multifaceted? In other words, like, could you adapt to the different cliques and, and make friends with all of them? Yeah, great question. So the short answer is I was a chameleon, right? I was able to kind of get along with the skaters. I did skate, but I was also captain of like the basketball team and started varsity soccer when I was a sophomore. I got along with the academic nerd type folks, right? Like, because I was in all the AP classes and talented and gifted programs, et cetera, et cetera. So I was able to be kind of this connective tissue, if you will. And it had a lot to do with I think my ability to communicate with these people at their level. And, you know, I give my mother a lot of credit for this. She was actually a university professor for, wait for it, speech and communications and theater arts. So I kind of grew up and so did my brothers. We all kind of grew up doing theater and understanding the value of storytelling and furthermore, the importance of clear and articulate communication, but also practicing that form of communication or articulation with people where they were, right? So there's certain parts of the deep south where you have to understand the lingo and the language and be able to interpret what these people are saying versus when you're in maybe New York City, it's going to be obviously very, very different. And even today, when I periodically will end up back in the deep south for various reasons, I immediately see myself getting my accent back and speaking kind of the local language, so to speak. Just because that's what human beings do. Humans begin to learn how to talk by mimicking what they hear. And this is why accents carry over generationally, assuming that those folks don't move out of those locations. And so it's very natural for me to just kind of snap back into that. And I recall actually one time I was in New Orleans with my wife and she was like, you sound like you're from the South again. I was like, I can't even help it. It's just like this natural adaptation when I'm in the local area. Yeah, no, that's I can relate to that. Again, I learned to speak English in Scotland because Scotland be an oil country, right? And so I'm literally learning on the streets or in our neighborhood, asking my dad, like, what does this mean? What does this mean? But in three months at that age, I learned English and I spoke with a Scottish accent, which is hard to believe, right? Yeah. And so it's you're absolutely right. This wanting to mimic is absolutely true because you got to start somewhere. So you just start replicating those sounds. So then professionally, how do you get to tech? Like, how do you get involved with this world that gravitated towards? What was the progression there in, in terms of your career? Yeah, that's another great question. So, I graduated high school in 1998. So, yeah, I'm, I'm dating myself here. 
And when I graduated, I originally thought I wanted to study political science and ended up getting a scholarship to Reed College in Portland, Oregon, where I reside today. Full round trip here. Decided to move to Portland the summer of 1998. And when I was here, I immediately dropped out. <laughs> and <laughs> the only other person of interest or of notoriety who I am glad to be in this category with is Steve Jobs dropped out of Reed College. However, I did, in fact, continue to go to school. And when I decided to, it was because I realized if I went to a state university, I qualified for Pell Grants and extremely cheap student loans, which I actually used to start my first company. So while I was attending Portland State University, I realized very quickly I did not want to do political science and I wanted to do math. So I started to dig into math and got really fascinated with some really theoretical areas of math. But when I would meet the kind of PhD students and call them adjunct faculty professors, I was like, man, these guys seem miserable. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm going to like, yeah, I'm into math, but I'm not like that into math, right? And so it dawned on me in, I think, 1999, early 2000, you know, I had been using uh, computers and the internet for a handful of years at that point. That this is really in the the kind of the infancy of dot com when the kind of the first real wave started to hit, I think, the public. And granted that I was living in the deep south, you know, they're unfortunately tend to be a few years behind, if not more than that, places like Silicon Valley. So I went to the computer lab, Portland State, and was able to get an email address and access the internet and do all these different things. And it really dawned on me, I was like, all right, I think this internet thing is gonna be big. I don't think it's like adding a fax machine to the office. Like this is like going to take over everything. And so I made this sort of calculated bet that the internet would just fundamentally change society, humanity. And I actually had this very early vision of how the internet could actually operate as like a common language amongst all of the global citizens of the world. Even though we all speak different languages, the internet could be this kind of binding force. And the reason that was interesting to me is that I mentioned my interest in political science. I read a lot about Noam Chomsky and some of his writings, and it turns out he's a linguistics professor. And understanding the history of language and the history of how languages evolve was very fascinating to me. And what dawned on me with the internet is that this could be kind of like a universal language for how you could connect effectively everybody on the planet. And so I was like, all right, I should probably go into computer science. <laughs> and so I started to go down the route of computer science. And that was cool. But there's a very large chip manufacturer located in Portland, and that company is Intel. And what I realized is that at Portland State, what you end up getting as a computer science degree, at least back then, and by the way, I love my alma mater. This is not meant to be derogatory at all. But you're basically getting taught by people that work at Intel. And they're more or less creating a pipeline of prospective candidates to go work at Intel. And I was more like, I just kind of want to have an education. I don't want to learn how to be an Intel developer, right? And I noticed that all of my electives were all philosophy courses. And turns out that there's a section of philosophy that looks like math, and it's called logic. And so I decided to, like halfway through my tenure at Portland State, switch to philosophy with a focus in logic. And that just was like the perfect blend for me because there's a lot of theoretical genuinely philosophical stuff with respect to logic. But logic is also what computer programming is. And so 
I felt like if I had a very strong foundation of logic, so this is like propositional logic, quantifiable logic, these types of things would benefit me to understand how to program a piece of software. And it turned out that was true. Yeah, it's also true in law and in contracts. I mean, there's a lot of similarities with the way a, a class is, is structured and with references and tiebacks into specific parts and in the way a contract is structured. So all that logic actually drives a lot of construct, uh, many constructs and what we do on a daily basis. So when did the idea to start, because the core focus right now in your life is to really build this technology-enabled powered asset management business. So how do you get from logic and computer science? I see a, a very clear link, right? I mean, in the way that you have to assess the risk, measure it, and put on trades, right? But there's a progression there in between. So I'm trying to tie the dots here as to, did you ever think at that time when you're studying logic, like one day I'm going to be in a seat and managing money for people? <laughs> Absolutely not. No, no, no way. You know, the, I would say 1999, 2000, 2001, myself and my younger brother partnered up and for our first company together. And we were actually throwing raves and hip hop shows in the Pacific Northwest and we actually did one in LA as well. So we were actually actively involved in the music industry. Uh, I actually started a couple of true like vinyl techno record labels. I learned very quickly the importance of foreign exchange and the expense, the challenge with selling your records in Germany for euros, but the shipping costs are in euros and you're getting back dollars and the dollar is now weaker against the euro. So I learned that through actually having a record label. So the kind of early part of my entrepreneurial career was really more around focused around culture. And, and I can talk a little bit more about why I think culture with respect to crypto and Web3 is, is critically important for any, the adoption of any new technology. But I have a background in that. You know, I was literally doing a lot of very, I would say, you know, at least to me, culturally significant things around the music industry. And whether it was you know, putting on events to uh, having record labels and, and producing music myself and DJing and all these types of things. And so if you had asked me 20 plus years ago, hey, do you think you'll ever be a hedge fund manager? I would just laughed at you, right? Like there's no way. But that to me is what is kind of so exciting about where I'm at today because my career path, I always tell people it's definitely colorful, right? From having record labels and being a DJ to trading on Wall Street to starting an open source enterprise infrastructure company to being a quant and systematic trader at institutional hedge fund. I mean, this is typically not your career, your typical path, I would say. And I think part of that has to do with my upbringing, right? Moving a lot, seeing a lot of different things, being interested in a lot of different stuff, and also kind of having the freedom and license, so to speak, to explore and, and try new things. And this was always encouraged by my mother and my, my brothers are also all extremely creative and, and talented. And it kind of just ran through our family. And I just happened to go down the route where I chose an industry, you know, tech and finance to some extent that pays really well. <laughs> Whereas the music industry is definitely not one of those industries typically, right? And so part of this for me is, was really that when I was DJing, had the record labels, doing my thing, I was still also actually programming. I was building websites. I was building like custom CMS solutions. I was even doing custom MySpace profiles, right? Like if you can remember those and how, how old we are. 
I was always tinkering and wanting to kind of stay on the leading edge, if you will, of what was happening with the internet. And also, it was just so cool to me to be able to sit at my computer and build something. On the weekend, sometimes my wife will ask me, are you working right now? I'm like, no, I'm, I'm like in my woodshed. Like some guys go into an actual shed and like build a crib or, or a desk or a bench and kudos, man. That's awesome. That's like your time. It's what you like to do. Like I like to write code. And I know that probably sounds a bit bizarre to non-technical people, but it is what I like to do. And so I was always kind of involved in this tech thing. And then in addition to that, with some of the success that I had had with the music related stuff, I started to invest in real estate. And again, I taught myself trading in the year 2000 and have basically been trading ever since. And so I was always fascinated with the math side of trading, whether it was doing statistical or technical analysis on trading data or becoming a chart technician and trying to understand the probabilities associated with prospective outcomes based on price data that would paint a chart, so to speak. Those things were just fascinating to me. And then overlay the ability to write software to do that for you was just a really, really cool thing, even though I was at the time technically in the music industry. And so the kind of how did I get to building an asset management business in crypto and Web3 that has a venture capital fund and has a hedge fund? For me, it's more or less the perfect combination of my skills, right? So on the one hand, crypto requires a deep technical, at least in my opinion, crypto, if you're going to invest in space and not just kind of buy tokens and cross your fingers, like probably need a pretty good technical background and you need to be able to understand distributed systems, network, architectures, cryptography to some extent, developer experience, user experience, candidly understanding how open source works. And then on the flip side, you also probably need to be pretty good at understanding market structure and trading. And both of those things are what I have done more or less for the past 20 plus years. And when I had a a close friend of mine talk me into starting a fund, I thought, man, this is actually a perfect marriage for my skill set and what I'm actually really passionate about. So it's just been really awesome to have looking back 20 years and thinking, would you be running an asset management business to actually running one? It's been quite an interesting journey. Yeah. And I think it gives you a very unique perspective, right? Think about all the things that you've seen and become acquainted with over and contrast that with you know, there's something to be said about the path that I had friends who literally in their teen years, like already knew they wanted to be in finance and they worked hard at math and then they followed that path and they've been at it since and they're very good at it, right? They have interests and passions on the side, but it's been overwhelmingly dominated from the majority of the time that you spend on a daily basis with that career. And so I sometimes wonder, and also one of the things that I really like about this sort of discontinuity that occurred with crypto is that people like yourself can find themselves in a seat where they're doing what they're doing, right? And clearly are skilled at it, right? Without having gone through the usual and typical overly conservative like checkboxes, right? It would have been like if you tried to start a credit fund from scratch, it would have been quasi-mission impossible, right? Yep. Because of the inherent conservatism and the fact that, look, if you haven't made it into the club and haven't been part of the bros for two decades, like it's hard, right? And what I've seen as a someone who... So I built a software company in the early stages of my career. I was successful enough to sell it. So I learned how to build an enterprise software company like in my 20s. And that was a great DNA upbringing. 
but I also always had a real passion for markets and I had really strong technical chops, right? So that's when I went to Wall Street, but I had to, on some level, pay my dues for a while before I could actually go out and start a hedge fund fully, right? But still, I think it gives you a unique perspective to have seen different things. And so as a TradFi guy, quote unquote, when I first started looking at crypto, I meet all these folks who are brilliant and don't necessarily have a background in this, in what it's traditionally perceived as, hey, you've paid your dues on Wall Street, right? So yes, I mean, I think you have to be careful about not having blind spots, like back to your point about pattern recognition. If you've been managing money for a long time, like there are a few things that you will know that you'll be able to sidestep. But I think it also takes away a little bit of the creativity and certainly the technical angle to your point, like if you're going to go out and blindly buy tokens, like you're going to get wrecked. And so the understanding of that, and you and I were talking about it the other day, like how do you think about risk management? How do you think about liquidity? How do you think about being able to scan the full opportunity set? If you're not a native in that space or you don't have that creative mind that is able to look beyond just the box that you've been trained in, you're going to miss out on a lot, right? Uh, totally. And so that's one thing that I find really fascinating with the space. So talk to us a little bit about the business that you've been building now for a little bit. How did it come together? You said a friend mentioned it, but did you have any co-founders? And what were the core desires or outcomes from starting that business? Yeah. So it actually starts back in 2016. I was actually CEO of NodeSource, which company I co-founded in 2013, which is the Node.js company. We were effectively what Red Hat does for the Linux operating system. We would do that for Node.js. Node.js, for those who are listening that may not be familiar with it, is the most popular and widely adopted open source project of the last decade. 100% of the Fortune 500 uses it. Every crypto and Web3 project uses it in some capacity. So it's a truly ubiquitous technology. And we were selling basically an enterprise version of this to companies like Goldman Sachs and Citadel and Delta Airlines and you name it, a bunch of different companies. So, but like I said, I've always been a trader. And uh, when I saw what was happening in crypto in 2016, I was like, huh, there's actually like, there's some vol here. And I'm a vol chaser, even though that is not indicative of how I manage risk, but I love to trade anything that's volatile. And crypto is definitely that. And 2017 came around, I got more active with trading. And the thing that dawned on me with that was, first of all, completely dislocated these markets where these 10,000 basis point arbitrage opportunities lasting for weeks. I mean, you just never, ever see that. And they just didn't stop. They just kept coming. But more importantly to me was how crypto was kind of the opposite of Wall Street. And what I mean by that is Wall Street is very gate-kept. It is very difficult to kind of just trade on the CME or set up a trading strategy if you want to run a systematic or quantitative strategy, right? There's all of these hoops that you have to jump through. And crypto was the opposite. Crypto was like, yeah, everything's open. Here's a bunch of APIs, open data sets. There's stuff on chain. There's whatever you need. Just get up and running and get going. And so to me, the pattern match here was this is kind of like the open source philosophy being applied to crypto. And I should say the open source philosophy being applied to digital assets. And what I saw is like the future of finance, if you will, or the future of money. And so in 2018, I resigned as CEO, moved into the chairman of the board role, was taking some time off and just started writing a bunch of quant strategies for crypto and got introduced to John Burbank at Passport Capital, which is a well-known hedge fund in San Francisco. He's very early to crypto and, and went there and decided to start 
building out the quantitative and systematic trading desk for crypto in 2018. Did that, but I ended up leaving in 2019, not because of Passport, but really because it's just really, really hard to trade crypto at a US hedge fund. <laughs> Even today, it's still very, very difficult, right? And I was still really passionate about exploring this space. And in doing so, I ended up leaving and going back to trading my own book, but also like, hey, it's 2019, bear market, best time to start doing a bunch of R&D in this space. So the other side of like my interest is understanding the technology, understanding what makes developers tick with this new technology. What are the new tools, infrastructure, patterns, et cetera, that are going to surface from these new technologies. And so I just got deep into the Ethereum community, started writing some Solidity applications that also then led me to things like Solana and determining the difference between you know the EVM and Solana's virtual machine, et cetera, et cetera. So somewhat technical bits there. But the point is, is that I got really deep into a lot of the tech side of crypto and Web3. And that got me into some advisory positions with a number of founders. Because NodeSource is a node, the company that I started was an open source business. Well, crypto is pretty much by definition open source. And it's a very, very difficult business model. I don't recommend it to be super clear, but I did it. And a lot of these founders were like, man, this guy did this thing with Node.js and maybe he could help me. And so I started to get some advisory positions at a handful of these companies, which then led me to angel investing in a number of these companies and protocols. And meanwhile, I had been recruited to join Microsoft and their cloud and AI organization and joined them to loosely help them not miss the next big thing, so to speak. I say that in jest, but genuinely, that's what I was focused on was really like emerging technology. And lo and behold, I spent all of almost all of my time focusing on Web3 and crypto. So if you fast forward to, I don't know, Q4 2021, a really close friend of mine named Steve Jang, who amazing entrepreneur turned exceptional investor. I think he just got added to the Forbes Midas list. He's first money into Uber and Coinbase and Tonal and Magic Eden and all these amazing companies and projects. He came to me and he said, look, Joe, you're the only guy in crypto that I know of that really understands the tech and also knows how to trade that isn't at a fund. And he's like, come work with us at Kindred Ventures and run the crypto piece here. And I said, look, man, I appreciate it. I'm flattered, but you know me, I'm an entrepreneur. If I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it myself. And he was like, I knew you were going to say that. And I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, you should run your own fund. Let me help you kind of think through a structure, how to get it off the ground. And oh, by the way, I preemptively pitched you to Mark Andreessen and Chris Dixon, and they would like to be the first money in. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so asymmetric was effectively born. The concept of asymmetric was born in Q4 of 2021. And then we ended up launching the firm in, in June of 2022. And here we are. Congratulations on that. What a great story and great backing to go out and start facing the real world in terms of building that business. So sounds like you had an initial set of LPs, right, to support you. There's also you know one thing that people don't know and that you do know because we talked about how you've capitalized the IP and is that it costs money to build a hedge fund. That's why it's very hard to start a hedge fund without a minimum under management because otherwise you're just, if you're worrying about keeping the lights on, you're going to have a really, really hard time focusing on making money on a daily basis. I don't know if you've run the numbers. I've done it inside out over the years and you know, it's going to take you on average between two and $3 million in operating expenses a year to run a basic hedge fund, right? 
So it sounds like you were able to gather some assets to start with. Did you get any help in the form of injections at the GP or, or management company level to help you get started and build some of the initial technology that you were going to use? Yeah, it's a great question. So in February of 2022, we had a significant amount of capital verbally committed to us. And I highlight the word verbally because the amount of time it took on the legal side to get the entities set up and bank accounts set up and all that good stuff took almost six months. This was obviously coming off the heels of 2021 as a massive year for crypto and risk assets in general. Law firms were effectively, they were no longer even taking clients. They had so much business. So many people were trying to launch funds and so many new projects and protocols were launching and raising money and this and that. And so the delay in actually launching the fund decimated that large initial asset under management number. But I'm an entrepreneur. I didn't even bat an eye, right? I was just like, oh, this is just how it goes, right? Like, if you're going to give up at this point or you're going to not find a way to win, like, you don't deserve it. And so, even though our assets under management fell by about, call it 60, 70% than what we had targeted, I did have a couple of folks that wanted to purchase some of the GP equity. So, I did end up selling some of that, used some of that to uh, capitalize the business and cash flow the business. And I still own a very large percentage of the GP. I only have a handful, and I literally mean a handful of GPs, and they're all strategic partners and investors. So this isn't just sort of like dumb money or folks that are trying to just spray and pray GP across a number of different funds. And so I feel very fortunate to have those folks supporting me. In addition to that, it is a startup, right? A hedge fund is a startup. And I think the difference between a venture-backed startup and say a startup like a hedge fund slash venture capital fund is you can't just simply burn your cash balance and then go raise more money like you can in a venture-backed business, right? VCs historically have given founders money and expect them to burn and then raise more money if they hit certain milestones. Well, it doesn't really work like that when you have a fund. You get a 2% management fee and that is basically what you get to run your business. And so I've been fortunate again to have a relatively lean but extremely seasoned team. And I would say I think three-fourths of the company, and we're not very large, like 10 people, three-fourths of the company are all former founders, exited founders. One of them started a hedge fund, was seated by Alan Howard. So we've got a lot of operational and I would say entrepreneurial grit such that myself and a couple other folks have done some things to say, hey, look, we're building something really big here, really special. Let's not put a strain on the business. Let's just defer our salaries, right? Doing things like that. And we're fortunate enough at this point of our, in our lives that we're able to afford that, right? Even though I don't expect folks to do that, no, that to me is also an incredibly resounding signal from the folks that I hired to work with me at the fund that they're basically saying, hey, look, I'm willing to do this effectively for free until we get to a point where we can start paying everyone a reasonable market salary, plus obviously the upside at a fund is in the carry. And I also started this business as a solo managing GP founder. So I don't technically have any founders. Although I would say my head of trading and the guy who's I would traditionally would call him like a portfolio manager, but I would see him as as close as you could probably get to a co-founder without technically being one because he was there actually from day minus one. Even before I was thinking about doing a fund, he was talking about funds and structures and how they work and the lessons learned that he had running his own fund. And so the other members of the team are just as lights out though. So 
if I had to, I don't want to pick any favorites here, obviously. But the point that I'm getting to is just sequentially, he's probably the closest that I would have to a co-founder just because he was there from even before the, the business actually started. So you know, there's one thing, though, that I do want to both emphasize and, and get your thoughts on is the capital, the people that you brought on board. All of this, again, is a testament to your ability to... I remember when I first I sold my first company, the general manager, gentleman by the name of Tom Hale, who's now the CEO of Ura, I was one of the general managers at Adobe. And I remember in one of our meetings, we're getting close to getting a deal done. He said, life, like you're not a leader unless you have followers, right? And so you seem to have an ability to create that following, right? The names that you highlighted, I don't say you drop them, you actually highlight them because they're part of the story of how this thing came out. These are not people that the average Joe, no pun intended, can cross paths with, right? And so it takes a hustle. So for people listening to our conversation, it's important to recognize that there is an element here of relationship building that you just have to work at. So like, talk to us about how did you find yourself in situations where you could have that conversation to get it started, right? Because again, I really want to be as honest and transparent to audiences is that you can't just wake up overnight and say, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do what Joe did, right? You can work towards it because obviously you worked at it. So how did you position yourself so that one day you could have that conversation one says, hey, Chris Dixon is in? Yeah. Oh, man, that's a great question. So I think when I transitioned out of the CEO role and the chairman role of NodeSource in early 2018, the thing that I unapologetically did with respect to crypto was I was brutally myself. <laughs> I was just myself. I was extremely authentic. I was very transparent. I was very open. And this might sound a bit sophomoric, but I created this Telegram trading like channel, if you will, that I was just kind of like almost live tweeting, live telegramming my trades in crypto. And I really didn't expect anything of it. And within a matter of a year or so, there were like 10,000 subscribers to this thing. And that just kind of blew my mind. And I think it had a lot to do with how patently transparent and open I was about what I was doing and why I was doing it. And that was just on the trading side, right? So there's a little bit of I wasn't like trying to market myself. I was just doing my thing, right? And, and being true to myself and being authentic. And then it evolved into building a reputation in the crypto space as a pretty good trader. Um, but then that was coupled with a lot of my involvement with some of these early stage projects as an advisor or angel investor. And that also then kind of amplifies your position in the space. And part of the path to being able to have the ability to work with some of these folks that are at Asymmetric has a lot to do with that. I mean, this is no joke. So this guy named Brett Beller, who works with us at Asymmetric, he was one of the co-founders of Drizzly, which was the liquor delivery company that sold to Uber for a ton of money. And he's an entrepreneur who happens to be a lawyer. And he's, he happens to be a lawyer who's one of the United States top Web3 and like DAO experts. And I kid you not, he DM'd me on Twitter one day and said, Hey, man, I've been a follower of your Telegram chat for a very long time. And I really appreciate all the kind of knowledge that you share. I've learned a lot from you, this and that. By the way, my name's Brad. I was a co-founder of Drizzly. And the first thing I thought was, this is a scam, right? <laughs> I was like, there's no way. And then I looked him up and I was like, oh, shit, it's truly him. This is cool. And I was like kind of looking at his LinkedIn, his background. I was like, huh. And I hit him up and we had a call. And 
what I thought would be like a 15 minute call turned into three hours. And it dawned on me, I was like, wow, I could actually learn a lot from this guy. And he has already learned a lot from me. This seems like a pretty cool opportunity to have forward thinking legal expert at a crypto fund, which turns out is kind of important, right? So, I mean, that's it's just one example of how these things play out, right? Be authentic to who you are, be unapologetically who you are, and things like this end up happening. Now, on the other hand, yes, given my background with respect to open source and tech more broadly, folks that are from traditional finance, in fact, Chris, who's the head of trading slash PM at Asymmetric, one of the reasons that he joined like one call close, if you will, was he said, I've been in TradFi, traded global macro, cross-asset, cross-geo, everything, done everything. But the thing about crypto is, is that you need a deep technological understanding of it. And he's like, and I simply don't have that. He's like, you have that. I can learn that from you. Putting our heads together, I think would be pretty powerful. And so part of this is having the background that I had in tech, but also understanding trading and being able to speak that language was what attracted someone like Chris to Asymmetric. So there isn't kind of like a prescription I can just give out on how this works. But if there was one takeaway that I would recommend to folks is to just, it sounds so lame, but it's really just to be authentically yourself and you know, good things come from that. No, I mean, I, it's a great lesson. And of course, again, it seems that it comes naturally to you. And that's why I wanted people to hear it because it's hard to bottle up and really explain and write a book. There's something there that some people just have more than others. You seem to have that. And it's, it's quite fascinating. Let's talk a little bit about your approach to identifying monetization opportunities, right? I mean, the name of the funds, I'm a big believer. And ultimately, if you want to make outsized returns or create a return distribution that's going to be right skewed, you need to find those opportunities out there. And they don't always exist, right? I mean, one of the hardest things in trading is to know when not to trade. I mean, that's actually the hardest thing, right? Most of your money is made two, three, four, five times tops within a year. And the hardest thing is if you come out of a stretch where you've had a good run, you think it's going to keep going. And so the best traders actually know how to say, well, you know what? I've actually made all the money I needed to make for the next six months, and I'm just going to chill. Harder said than done. What is your approach? How do you build your book? We're not trying to pry for details. Obviously, you run a proprietary operation, but just a philosophy there. Yeah, sure. I mean, so yeah, so I like I've been trading for 23 years and have definitely taken my lumps <laughs> through learning how to manage risk and how to manage your emotion and know when not to trade and, and when to really shove all in and all that good stuff, right? I mean, it, it is, I don't think there's a way to learn this quickly. I hate to say it, but it, I think you just have to do it for a long time. It's kind of like playing golf or something like you just, it's very rare for someone to just be naturally gifted at risk management and sizing and all of that stuff, right? It's a very difficult thing to get good at. So the way that we think about it is kind of through three lenses. One is the way that we, and this is specifically on the kind of liquid alpha fund, our hedge fund, or discretionary long bias, but not long only fund. We have three ways. First one is we look at things from a fundamental perspective. And this is where the tech background really serves us extremely well. So I'll give you a primary example. So 
I have a fundamental view that decentralized storage is probably going to be a requirement for Web3 application development going forward, period, right? Pick any piece of software, there's storage there, right? There's a database, there's a file, right? Something along these lines, right? And so that was the view. And we said, all right, well, let's go do some research as to what's out there to express this view. And what we identified was, no surprise, Filecoin and Arweave. And I went a little bit deeper. And I know Juan Benet from Protocol Labs, who created Filecoin. I think his co-founder was actually an intern at NodeSource, which is a bit ironic. And Filecoin is great. Have nothing but positive things to say about it. Then we looked at Arweave. Arweave, also really, really good. The difference and why, like, if we had to pick one or the other, was actually a technological decision. The first is that Arweave is written in a rather obtuse programming language called Erlang. Erlang, the E-R in Erlang, stands for Ericsson, which Ericsson is the company that created all the mobile switch towers, and they needed a highly performant, bulletproof systems language, and that's what Erlang is. And so the guy who founded Arweave chose to write it in Erlang. And I'm like, okay, this guy, this guy has to be very smart, first of all. But that's not good enough, right? The other piece then is, is like, how will developers adopt this? And what is your path to getting developers to adopt it? And at the time when we were evaluating something like Arweave versus Filecoin, we gave just a slight edge to Arweave. Okay, so we like Arweave. Well, then now it's not just let's just go by the token. The other thing that we do is we try to find the optimal expression of getting access to this, this asset. And the obvious thing is, well, we could just go buy the spot token. Right? You go, out, go out and buy some Arweave, some AR. The problem with that is, is that Arweave is extremely thin. And so if you want to put on meaningful size, A, you'll probably do it through OTC, which then you pay a bit offer on that. That's not great. Or B, you may spook the market if you're putting on like major size trade and someone catches on to that and they front run you. And again, this is, this is what you learn from trading long enough that this tends to be what happens. So then we said, let's not do the spot token. Let's talk to one of our dealers and do a non-deliverable forward, which is a derivatives contract that effectively mirrors or mimics what the spot token is without actually owning the underlying token. And so that's what we did, right? We put on an NDF trade and off to the races. Now, that the reason that the one thing that I'm, that I'm leaving out here is, well, that's great, Joe, but like what price? This is where we use a lot of our quantitative and technical analysis to determine specific levels where we would want to get long, say, are we even in this particular scenario? We couple that with the way that we value the network, if you will, the protocol, and at what price from a technical analysis level, as well as the kind of valuation, where would we be comfortable being long for the quote unquote long haul, right? And we identified those levels and pretty much near the bottom. <laughs> it's pretty nice. We actually didn't think the price would get there and it did. And that is an example of end-to-end a fundamental trade. Now, the second category is what we call event-driven or kind of narrative-driven. Crypto is an incredibly narrative-driven asset class. And so the example here would be in December of last year, we identified that the liquid staking derivative narrative would likely pick up steam heading into the Shanghai slash Chappella upgrade for Ethereum. Turned out to be true. So then we identified, well, who are the top players with respect to liquid staking? It turned out Lido was by far, in a way, the largest market share of, of staked Ether. They have a token. Token was trading sub $1. Within a couple of months, it was trading 3 bucks. 
we got out of that trade. That is an example of an event-driven or kind of narrative-driven trade where just trying to capitalize on the perspective opportunity there, we may not have a fundamental view on it. And the third category is macro. So one of the ironies of what we've done at Asymmetric, and I think one of the reasons why we've been positive inception to date, dramatically positive year to date, is that last year we were pretty bearish and we have a lot of research, or I guess we write these monthly market updates and folks can go to subscribe.asymmetric.financial if you want to subscribe to our, our mailing list to receive these. We put them out for free. We were pretty bearish pretty much all year last year. And in fact, it all had to do with macro. You can go back and read August, September, October, et cetera, and just see our view. And you can imagine what we did. Well, we were effectively in cash to your point. We were not trading. And we were actually short in October heading into November. And that worked out for us, right? So we were able to express our macro view through, I would say, sophisticated option structures in Bitcoin and Ethereum. And you put those three categories together, and I'm obviously talking my own book here, but that feels like a pretty powerful combination for running a crypto hedge fund because a lot of folks in crypto that are large hedge funds, for example, they may not understand the technology or they may understand the technology, but they're long only and they have no idea how to use hedging instruments. And our view is that is kind of a disservice to your limited partners that have invested in you. If you're up a thousand percent one year and then you're down 90% the next year, like, yeah, it's not a good look. And then furthermore, no institution is going to stomach that level of volatility or drawdown. So it doesn't actually bode well for the broader industry. So we are not trying to single handedly bring a set of sound risk management policies into crypto and change the game. It's just how we operate. And we have found that by having a very regimented, militant risk management policy and framework has enabled us to you know, not only outperform every benchmark we track, but also manage our risk in a way where we don't ever have these types of drawdowns or extremely volatile swings in our broader portfolio. That makes a lot of sense. And I think your results speak and attest to that. I'd say, you know, if you think about the hedge fund business model, right? If, if you sit in a room brainstorming, you're starting, let's say, a software venture or anything like a brick and mortar business, you're going to spend a lot of time thinking about pricing. Like, how do you sell? How much do you sell your services for? When you run a hedge fund, that price is determined for you. The market's cleared. It's two and 20. Any derivation of that, I know there's been fee pressure over the years in other asset classes, but but you really get that how do you differentiate yourself, how you get paid for as an intermediary is what you just went through right now. It's like, what makes you a better manager of my money? Because I know I'm going to shell out two and 20, right? I mean, whether I put it with you or someone else to try and navigate this space, right? And so the differentiation here, and that's why it's highly complex, is that you need to understand at a very deep level the technology and the ecosystem. When you think in terms of understanding the market depth, trading capacity on some specific token trades, all the way up to if anyone follows your Twitter, it's pretty clear that you're very, very in tune with what's going on at the bigger picture, at the macro level, right? Whether it's monetary policy, what's going on in the bond markets, what's going on in the equity markets, what's going on in equity volatility markets. And that's truly what you need in order to be able to operate, right? Because if you're really just isolated in looking at one single aspect, it's going to be very, very hard, at least at this stage of the game, right? 
it's not something where you can look at things in a vacuum without taking into account the macro environment, the macro picture. Hey, guess what? Last year, there's a big, big adjustment. A lot of us have argued way too late and missed time and ill time on the part of the Fed, but the reality is it's happening, right? And the market needs to overcorrect. And so being able to not only read the tea leaves across you know, going all the way from the micro all the way to the macro and back and forth is critical in order to not only effectively put on trades that will make money, but also risk manage, right? Yep. Liquidity will dry up at times when you expect them the least. And if you don't understand the flows of money, the flows of leverage, and as much as the two worlds of fiat and crypto are not necessarily as connected as we'd like them to be, for obvious regulatory reasons, the money is still flowing back and forth. So understanding exactly how that money moves and how it impacts markets and how certain liquidations or certain other folks trying to load up some trades are going to impact prices is, is obviously very important. Totally agree. So as you look forward, you've talked about a few trades just to highlight just a, here are key examples of what you would put on and how you think about putting it on. What are you excited about as I look at that continuum of micro all the way to macro, right? And again, following sort of your narrative and what you like to talk about, which I enjoy reading, what are you excited about and what are you worried about both on the macro and micro front? Yeah, good question. Where do I start? Let's talk about the macro piece first. So we've written about this. I've probably talked extensively about this, certainly on podcasts and my Twitter account, et cetera. We are entering... <laughs> let's just say uncharted territory at this point. There's so many weird moving parts from 31 trillion now going up to 36, if not 50 trillion over the course of X number of years in debt to two and a half, two, or excuse me, $2.2 trillion in the reverse repo right now. And the Fed's paying 5.125% on it to banks to just park their cash with them and take money out of the system. I mean, this is just these are kind of crazy things. And I'm just talking about the United States, right? So from a macro perspective, we talked about this in our market updates last year. We firmly agree and believe that liquidity drives a lot of this, if not all of this, but certainly a lot of this. And last year, you had arguably one of the largest global liquidity sucks, certainly in recent time. But more importantly, global liquidity actually bottomed in October. And even though the Fed continues to hike rates, recall there are other central banks. And we've seen certainly at the beginning of the year, the People's Bank of China injecting records amount of liquidity into the markets. The shadow banking side of China is actually exploding. So this is all factors into liquidity, not just what's happening at, say, the Federal Reserve. And furthermore, liquidity is actually being driven by emerging market countries and their easing policies. So on net, liquidity is actually starting to increase. And we see that as, frankly, bullish risk. How do we get there? What does that mean for crypto? I'll get to that in a second. But as you continue to pump liquidity into a system, there's more cash available in the system. And that cash tends to flow to spe speculative and risk assets at some point. Furthermore, with country like China injecting that much liquidity into the system in, with respect to crypto, 90% of all the flows for crypto exist outside of the United States. And the majority of it is actually housed within Southeast Asia. So it doesn't take a genius to figure out that if there's going to be a significant amount of liquidity 
entering the Southeast Asian area, coupled with maybe a loosening of the regulation or policies that China and other countries in Southeast Asia have towards trading and owning crypto, you could probably see where this goes, right? You could see pretty significant upside in crypto. And then then you kind of like overlay the pattern match with what happens with crypto cycles and certainly Bitcoin having event coming up. And there seems to be like, all right, last year was sort of this series of generational crises for the crypto industry, as well as arguably, I think the worst year on record for the bond market, let alone crypto just getting smoked. If you zoom out a little bit and go, when would a market bottom? It's probably last year. And it was probably Q4 of last year. And we tend to agree with that because liquidity bottomed in October of last year. So from a macro perspective, look, we obviously none of this is financial advice, but we actually are kind of bearish US dollar. I think a lot of folks think that dollar is going to rip because people are seeing the US dollar as a safe haven asset. I don't think that's necessarily the case. And so the follow-up question is, well, if you're bearish US dollar, what currency pair are you interested in? I said, none of them. I'd rather own gold and Bitcoin, real assets. And I think that that's actually where a lot of other folks are starting to park their cash, so to speak. Central banks around the world have a record amount of gold buying over the past, call it four or five months. This trend is not slowing down. So that's kind of our view on macro. We do think that there's going to be... Honestly, I can't believe what's happened in in the, the equities markets, particularly NASDAQ, but you have a mini bubble with artificial intelligence stocks and probably rightfully so to some extent, but you know, equities have been really juiced recently. We tend to think that equities are probably going to suffer as debt ceiling is raised and the TGA is refilled. We don't think that money comes from the reverse repo. We actually think it comes from probably equities and equities have had a hell of a run this year. So it's probably a good idea to take profits and rotate into f- fixed income. But what does that mean for crypto? Our view really is that crypto decoupled January of this year and is Bitcoin's the top performing asset out of, I think, everything at this point. And yes, even though kind of recently it's traded sideways to slightly lower, we still think Bitcoin has a significant amount of room to run. And that means more broadly for crypto, that crypto is kind of a bizarre all boats rise scenario. Certainly not every single token, but the good ones. <laughs> the ones that I own, right? Of course, the ones in my bag. So we do think that there's light at the end of the tunnel. I think there's continued bullish activity and upside with respect to, to crypto. On the micro side, if we think more specifically in crypto and Web3, there's a couple of areas that we're quite interested in. One is is mobile. So I actually have a firm belief that mobile will be kind of the key unlock for onboarding a ton of new people into crypto, Web3, NFTs, video games, whatever. And there's a pattern here. We've seen this movie before. This happened 12 years ago with the iPhone and Android. You had what are called mobile-first applications, right? And the reason is, is that the mobile, the smartphone is a fundamentally different form factor than a, a QWERTY keyboard and a mouse and a monitor, right? So the types of applications that you can build are just fundamentally different. Well, crypto has been stuck in desktop computer laptop land forever. And our view really is is that mobile will start to see a significant amount of interest from developers and we will start to see mobile first web3 applications. So we're very very interested in tracking that trend and seeing what's happening there. What are the underlying infrastructure providers for this? What are the underlying L1s that will benefit from this? What kind of applications won't work in mobile that people will try to build and we want to avoid those? So mobile, we think, 
broadly is going to be huge over the course of the next few years as it relates to to crypto and Web3. I mean, I couldn't agree more. And I'm listening to you talk and it's the alignment there out of a company that I care a lot about in the NFT space. And they're building some really, really interesting products. And to your point, I told them, I said, guys, if you want to be in the big leagues, and we're talking about creation, the exchange of intangible value, you're going to be dealing with brands and consumers and people who engage with that value that's being created. Your audience is on mobile phones. And I think it's just a factor of a lot in crypto's developers like kind of coding away and building some initial widgets on desktop and not really thinking through kids in high school, kids in college, young adults that are like usually the early adopters in a new wave. That's the way they access their services, right? That's the way they start. So to your point about form factor, understanding how people interact with technology on mobile phone, I think is, is a key unlock. And it is happening. Some entrepreneurs get it. To your point, there's a lot of infrastructure that's being built. And that, that makes me very, very excited about the potential, right? Because once you start enabling access to those services through different ways, once you've also abstracted for other developers that may not be as deep as the you are, or like some people in the community are, but they're like, hey, I want to build a product and I need a set of APIs to build against it. And I want to roll it out on mobile, right? It's like, oh, here's a toolkit to do that. I mean, you're a Node.js guy, right? You know how much that contributed. And then all the abstraction layers that were built on top of it contributed to creating new services that no one had ever anticipated. That's right. So that's very, very, very exciting. I'd say, what do you make of the custodial debate, right? I mean, we've seen a tremendous decrease in the amount of digital assets that are being held on exchanges versus not. How has that impacted market dynamics, right, over the past year? You know, we've obviously seen the limits of greedy CFI, a lot of issues there, right? Bad actors. I think we're hopefully past that for now, but the landscape's changed. So what do you make of that in terms of where are the coins and how are they being moved around and traded? And how does that impact market microstructure? Yeah, great question. So, well, the answer is they're not really trading that much anymore. The I think I saw the block posted something today or yesterday that a year ago, I think the month of May volume was something like, I don't know, a couple trillion dollars or something. And, and this May, it's like 25% of that or something. Huge drop in spot trading volumes. And a lot of it has to do with what you're describing. A lot of it has to do with the fact that people have less liquidity available to them to actually speculate on. So last year in 2021, we're not necessarily great benchmarks because you had an artificial amount of additional liquidity that was pumped into the system and everybody was stuck at home from COVID and guess what they were doing? They were opening up Robinhood and Coinbase and Binance and anything else that they get their hands on to stay active and entertain to some extent. And those folks are largely gone. I mean, we see this almost every cycle. I think it was just super amplified in 2020 and 2021, given the monetary and fiscal stimulus and policies that were put in place to enable a bunch of additional cash into the system. So as it relates to 2023, yeah, spot volumes are super low. I think folks are also being a bit wiser about how they, you know, folks that are actually holding, how are they actually holding it? And what we saw with the FTX debacle is testament to 
why we think maintaining the custody of your assets is incredibly important. You know, the sad part, I mean, there's a lot of sad part of FTX. I had a lot of folks and close friends of mine that were deeply affected by that. But one of the sad parts is that FTX was attempting to create vertically integrated solution for trading digital assets, where you could just basically park your tokens, if you will, and do everything, right? Whereas in TradFi, it's split up amongst multiple parties. And it turns out there's a reason for that. There's some checks and balances there that are important, but there's also a ton of inefficiencies and costs associated with that. And so I do believe that there's an opportunity for an exchange of sorts that can marry the two of these where you retain custody of your assets, but you can still trade in a centralized exchange style environment. And I am definitely topic in my book here because we found a company that is doing this. These are some ex-Citadel DRW traders from Chicago that understand high-performance systems and trading, but they're also, I won't give them away too much, but they are L1 core contributors to a, a very fast and highly performant L1. And the way that they're actually developing this exchange is to enable people to feel comfortable trading with them because you actually retain custody of your assets. And they do this through multi-party compute. We don't have to go into what that means, but effectively it splits up the private key so that the exchange itself can't actually just take custody of your assets. So we do think that a lot of the custody-related issues are impacting spot market volumes, but there's also just the pure liquidity suck that's happened and people taking losses or or sitting on sitting well underwater depending on when they bought crypto over the past few years that definitely has an impact right however there is a bright side to this and that is that uh, spot volumes continue to drop derivatives volumes continue to make new all-time highs and for us we are excited about that because we're pretty good at trading derivatives and we would prefer to trade derivatives in a lot of cases because you actually don't have to custody specific tokens to get exposure to crypto or digital assets. And so as spot volumes are actually decreasing for the reasons that I mentioned, derivatives volumes and open interest are just continuing to hit new all-time highs. That is, again, great for people that understand how to trade derivatives. It does elude itself back to the kind of traditional finance model where you have a dealer that you're facing and you're trading verbally is probably or vocally is the, the way to think about it, but you're talking in a telegram chat, <laughs> which sounds kind of crazy, but that's actually how this stuff works. Because a lot of people say, well, Joe, there's like on-chain options, right? On-chain options make up 19 basis points of all options trading for crypto. It's nothing. And there's a reason for that because on-chain options require to be fully collateralized. That is not capital efficient trading of options. If you've ever traded options, that's definitely not what you would end up doing. Unless you're just literally long, right? Like you're just buying calls or buying puts and then sure, you're paying premium. But if you're putting on structures like spreads, you're going to sell something. Or if you just want to do targeted buying and sell puts, for example, right? Like there's initial margin requirement that at a dealer is 30, 40, 50%. Whereas if you do it on chain, it's 100%. It's not going to work. So I think the on-chain options space, I was initially very bullish about, but then very quickly realized that this is never going to work, at least in its current form. And as it relates to the CME volume and then the dealers, there's a lot of activity. So a lot of this, unfortunately, is opaque to the outside world of crypto traders, which is sad because ideologically, we would prefer all of this to be transparent and on-chain. But I just mentioned the capital inefficiency issue with respect to fully collateralized options trading just doesn't work. 
And so again, if your job as portfolio manager, investment manager, hedge fund manager, et cetera, is to generate returns for your LPs, you're going to go where you can do that. And today, that is definitely not on chain. It just happens to be in the OTC dealer market, CME to some extent, and to some extent, Deribit. But Deribit also is a fraction of the, I would say, the broader dealer derivatives markets. Yeah, no, that's a fair description. I mean, my takeaway is unpacking what you said is, if you look at the measure of assets, digital assets custodied on, on exchanges, and the decrease over the past year, I actually think it's a net positive because I do believe that vertical integration is possible in a non-custodial manner. And to your point, there are people working on it. At the end of the day, it's a workflow design problem and it's a technical problem at the end of the day. So it's more a matter of, it's not that it's not feasible, it's people agreeing that that's the lingua franca or in terms of workflows that they want to implement. And I think once you see the efficiencies in terms of cost, I mean, that's why some of the biggest proponents of building infrastructure, right? you look at why is Jump so involved in building Solana, right? Because they have an ax there, right? Yep. They're thinking about next generation trading infrastructure. And so it's you have to look at the experts in that field to know where the market is going. And then the other thing is spot volume, albeit being down because it was speculative in nature or driven the next unlock that you refer to, I think that's going to spur a less speculative flow, but a much more robust use case driven flow, right? Totally agree. And so one of the metrics that I think is very important to just always keep a tab on is on-ramp, right? What are the on-ramp volumes globally and like have ways to track that as a proxy for how much fiat is going out there and trying to buy just like in FX, right? It's like, why are currencies being bought and sold? It's because transactions are being affected, right? And so looking at that as and the stability of that as a proxy for use case driven adoption, I think is a much more relevant way to look at it and saying, oh, the balances on exchanges have dropped, right? That's actually a good thing. Because the whole ethos of crypto is to try to move away, you know, from these structures that we know on some level, you and I know are broken, and will have to be addressed. Yeah, look, I mean, I completely agree. And so there is value in the kind of exposure of crypto as an asset class via simple applications and user experience and clean user experience. The problem with that is over the course of the past few years is that that is the old model of doing things. It's a web two centralized approach. And we saw the, all of the issues with respect to the CFI lenders, right? Hey, it's all great when the number keeps going up, but the second that price starts to fall, there's a major problem. And that doesn't happen on chain, right? <laughs> like if you park your collateral in Ava, like you get liquidated if you don't meet your collateral requirements and that's it. It the Ava doesn't like go bankrupt, right? This doesn't work that way. And so I do agree that spot volumes dropping is probably a good thing in the short term. However, the downside to that is, is that the markets could and candidly should be more volatile given the thinness of liquidity. And so this is, again, one of the reasons why we tend to favor using derivatives to express a lot of our views because we don't necessarily have those liquidity constraints. So what you may still end up with is it doesn't take much to punch an order book on Binance or Coinbase at this point. You don't have to have massive, massive size like you do in TradFi. You can punch order books, I would say, 
pretty easily these days and actually move markets, especially for some of those mid to small cap tokens. That's not great for call it sophisticated or dare I say institutional adoption of crypto as an asset class, which I again believe is why the derivatives markets are actually picking up is some of these folks can some of these macro shops, for example, we know were punting Bitcoin in early March when the SVB collapse was happening. And this idea that there's financial stress in the system, so buy gold, buy Bitcoin, right? But they didn't just go buy a bunch of Bitcoin on Coinbase. They were expressing those use through, through options and other derivatives. And so the use case driven approach of how these tokens are going to be utilized, I completely agree with. Running joke of crypto for the longest time is that the killer feature of crypto is speculation. And to be fair, no market has ever existed or persisted without speculation. In fact, every market starts with speculation. It's actually healthy for a market to have speculators. The difference is, is that you don't want that to be the only reason that someone is investing in something. And I think we will move past that as we A, start to see a desire for people to move away from trusting institutions, which this has been a trend for years now. I think Edelman, which is a huge PR agency out of New York, puts out a report every year that this kind of like this trust index, if you will, and it continues to make all-time lows like every year. And that's not just trust the government or trust government agencies, or it's also trusting banks, trusting media. And this is a broader trend, I think, that actually favors people self-custodying their own wealth through digital assets and cryptocurrencies because Let's look at what happened over the past few months, right? The regional bank crisis. People for a very, very long time in the United States have always just been like, oh, I just put my money in a bank and it's fine. Well, that is now up for debate. And when people start to question, well, wait, what are these banks actually doing with my money? And is my money actually safe? Is it safer for me to quote unquote store it under my mattress or on a USB key, right? I think this is a real challenge to the establishment of the financial industry and frankly, the banking community, that if this narrative picks up steam with, call it your mom and pops of the world, you could actually start to see this as a huge tailwind again for crypto. And by the way, if folks can do this on their mobile phones, it's even easier. And that is, I think, one of the reasons why we tend to track what's happening more broadly in a macro sense as well as things like digging deep into, hey, how can we get more people into crypto through mobile? Look, and I'll close on this. I think what happened and will continue to happen, and we've got, we're yet to see the credit impact of commercial real estate. We've had the duration shock, the rate shock. Uh, we'll see what the impact of that is on balance sheets. I think there's gonna be some interesting surprises as the year progresses on that front. But what happened with the banking crisis in Q1 which is still ongoing, so I don't want to imply that it ended in Q1, is the same, this asset liability mismatch is the same thing that happened with CFI last year in crypto, except the difference is the government's backstopping it. And I think at some point you have to ask yourself, is there a better solution? Because as we know, the way to backstop it is to print money, right? And so it's, it's all very reflexive in nature, right? And I think if you combine that with those two things, right? The government's going to have to keep printing money to sustain the system. And number two, we need crypto to figure out what the way forward is to redesign the financial system. Those are massive tailwinds, right? And that's what's fascinating and gets lost in translation as people get so bearish and so caught up in the current narrative is that if you take those two things, 
Number one, the government's going to have to keep printing money. And number two, we need crypto to redesign the system. That's a pretty powerful bullish thesis on a secular basis. Joe, I think I definitely could spend probably another five hours. It's been so insightful and so fascinating, starting with your own path and journey and your very unique perspective, right? That comes at it from very, very different angles. I want to thank you for spending the time and discussing your business. Sounds like you're on track for some great success. I wish you the best of luck in navigating the markets for the rest of the year. And certainly would love to have you again. If there's another conversation, you know, be my first phone call. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. I'm happy to come back. Awesome. Thanks. This podcast is produced by Rado Venture Management LLC, RVM. RVM is not an investment advisor. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of any entities they represent, not investment advice.